0: Hi, and welcome to The Indian Edit. I'm Natasha, and this is a podcast where you can hear innovative, inspiring, and international women who have created amazing things. My guest today, Rashmi Bismarck, is a physician specializing in preventive medicine and holistic mindfulness-based interventions, and a newly-minted children's book writer, author of the delightful Finding Om, And we were introduced by a common friend, Pooja, hi, if you're listening. (laughs) So I'm so happy to virtually at least get to finally meet you, Rashmi, and hopefully sometime in person. So welcome and thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much, Natasha. I know, I hope soon in person for sure. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I feel like when I look at your work and um, took a bit of a dive into, um, you know, your the picture book, but also your background, um, that we could have several hour long chats about (laughs) all the different aspects of your life and work. So it's going to be really challenging to restrict this (laughs) to under an hour. Um, But let's start with your medical training and background. Um, Did you always want to be a doctor as a little kid?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I definitely did. I remember in first grade drawing a picture saying either professional tennis player or doctor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you kept both interests <laughs> going, or did
1: the tennis kind of uh, slide? Well, the, ten- the tennis, uh, when I got to college and stuff, it slid a little bit. Though my father was a big tennis enthusiast, and so is my sister. So oh, you nice. know, they'll play every once in a while. But, wow! Um, yeah, I you know I had always um, wanted to be. I think I think for me the interest was more in terms of service and and helping people. Mm-hmm. um, reducing suffering and helping people heal you know that was Mm -hmm. kind of the main interest around that Um, but i was also really curious about like ten thousand other things (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, including um you know for me growing up in the us i was growing up actually in the same town where i'm living in right now it's called cheryl new york um and it's really small town and we were the only indian family here the only Mm -hmm. family of color for a while and um and so, you know, hearing about all of our stories from from India and the, you know, the epics and all the mythology was something that really captured my curiosity and wonder as a kid. Um, mm. Of course, because the, the stories are so enticing, but also, too, it was a way for me to connect with our Indian heritage since, you know, in those days when I was younger, it was so expensive to travel. We didn't often yeah. get to go very, very much, so...
0: That's so interesting because sometimes being the only one might make you sort of um, just not that excited to engage with that heritage and really be desperate to fit in uh, with what you saw around you. So it is really interesting to me that you've always um, seemed to have this connection with the tradition and your heritage, but also really taken pride in it um, and really embraced it in a way that not um, everyone does.
1: Well, I think it was definitely a struggle, you know, through when I was growing up. And of course you go through those rebellious stages in your (laughs) teens. Yeah,
0: (laughs) good. I'm glad, I'm glad
1: you had those. (laughs) I think all of us do, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, I think, one of the things was my my parents were really lovely in the ways that they tried to keep us engaged and sharing things with us my both of them loved Uh, in my grandmother was a Carnatic music teacher and she stayed with Ah. us for a while both my parents loved music my father loved dance and Kathakali Mm. and he was very emotive so he always made everything seem so exciting and engaging that it was kind
0: of hard to resist that Oh, that's amazing um, well that's the best way if they themselves had such a love for it Um, it wasn't some sort of prescriptive this is what I should be doing as a parent, uh, you know. <laughs> okay. Right. Um interesting. So so you had this love of um or an interest, I guess, in medicine and having a career in service um of some kind, which uh, is amazing and makes sense. It led you to medical school. Um But I heard that you you were in college in a combined undergrad and MD program and invented a major so you could travel to (laughs) India. I did.
1: (laughs) So also in my youth, um, I actually have an autoimmune disease. Hashimoto's Mm. uh, have had thyroid problems from a young age. And so actually through my adolescence and teenage years, we used a lot of Ayurveda for helping Mm. me with that um and that was really eye-opening for me because it created a lot of tension with my medical care team here
0: Mm -hmm.
1: where at one point one of the doctors like threw our medical file and was like well if you're going to take this other stuff then don't consider coming back here Mm. um, so was
0: it uh, sorry to interrupt um, a nutrition-based ayurvedic regimen or actually uh, a sort of treatment
1: yeah, both. At that time, there was um, a physician in our area who's actually one of my friend's aunts, and mm. she's a um, um, anesthesiologist, but who had done extra training in Ayurveda, oh. and so she was seeing people for Ayurveda consultations. So, um, so that. Experience itself started to open my eyes to how much there can be to healing, because mm. um, it was everything from making me think about the things I was eating, the foods I was eating, my um, ways of engaging with exercise, my, mm. um, and then of course also some er- herbal things as well, preparations as well, and mm-hmm. so and and actually. Um, by the time I went to college, I was on such a minuscule dose of the uh, medication that mm. we tried going off of it, the, the conventional medicine, which is levothyroxine, that when I went to college, um, you know, at that time, my family practitioner was like, I know you're going to like forget to take it anyway. Let's just see how you do and we'll just keep monitoring you. And, huh. you know, until my pregnancies many years later, actually um, everything was well controlled and kind of in remission, um, mm. just diet and you know being mindful of, of of the ways that I was engaging with myself.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, at that time when you were growing up, um, and really even now, um, a lot of complementary medicine um, is really viewed. With suspicion by the establishment, um, yeah. so you know I I had seen that um, the NIH had started, but this was in the late nineties. Um, what what is now called I think the National mm-hmm. Center for Complementary and Integrative Health,
1: yeah, uh, which
0: I think was called that, alternative medicine, which uh, <laughs> sort of rebranded. Back then,
1: AM right, they right, co-
0: complementary and alternative medicine, right. Um yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting just in the context of your work that these this sort of shift has been very recent in the medical uh, profession. Um, so, anyway, I, I just think it's interesting that you had a personal and direct kind of involvement with this.
1: It's been building, I think. So when I was in... So, yeah, so you had asked about going to India. So, so all of this really um, fueled my interest in our traditional healing. But I'd always also just been interested in philosophy. My dad used to tease me Mm -hmm. that I like always wanted to know more about like Vyasa and Vishwamitra, like Mm -hmm. how come they knew all this stuff, you know, (laughs) like I just wanted to know. So I had a very inquisitive mind. So um, yeah, in college I kind of put together courses in South Asian religion and medical anthropology and public health. Along with my basic science stuff, to ultimately be able to go to Kerala for six months. My um, my father's one of his uh, uncles was a very famous Vaidyan in Kerala, mm. um, in and so um, and and also one of my mother's family members was a head of an Ayurvedic college. So I got to spend time with both of them, and uh, also with their colleagues, and mm. learning more about the the basic philosophy, um, basic philosophies, but also the approach to the patient and to communities. and so it was just an amazing time of growth for me because of course, got to explore not only Ayurveda but yoga philosophy and mm. different realms energy work, and uh, you know how everything interplays from the marma uh, massage to the you know, energetic kind of aspects and all of that so it was really a beautiful experience to come into medical school with that um Mm. that immersion in like what was then considered alternative but more complementary ways to approach health and so when i went into medical school it was still really um not something that was accepted and so i you know Started an interest group around um, complementary medicine in medical school, and mm-hmm. and tried to engaged with our communities. And so for me, all through medical school, I also became friends with you know the acupuncturist, local acupuncturist, massage therapists, and other people who could I could learn from as well along the way. Um, and so a lot kind of did my own exploration at that time. There was no. Now there's these beautiful integrative medicine fellowships at that time that didn't exist. So I kind of created my own opportunities here and there whenever mm. I could uh, to do that. Um, which really, again, just enriched my um, my appreciation for how much there is to health and healing from a holistic perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard that you say, that you felt this tradition of really connecting with patients um, was somewhat eroded in conventional medicine, and that um you learned from your uncle, I believe, this this idea of yukti. So can you talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah. Um, so you know, Yukti is one of the ways of knowing um in Ayurveda, which, in in the sciences, um, which has to do with, um, you know, sometimes it's like thought to be magical knowing, or but really it's the knowing that comes from experience and having seen patients and having been with. But really um, what I loved was the way he talked about it was that when you're really present with somebody and understanding them and being there with them, there's something... That a, a deep knowing that can arise just from being present and being able to um, integrate what you're learning about them, their family life, what their experiences have been, that then helps you to guide your de- decision making. And I found that to be really powerful um, that idea of how valuable it can be to be present um, mm-hmm. with that you're treating. And so, in that way, um, Uh, He would say, you know, so as Viadians are doctors, you you know, we're not just preventing problems, we're promoting positive health for people because we're teaching them and empowering them with the knowledge of how they can be, um, how to remember their agency and how they can make choices to serve them and help them with healing, Mm. um, and and that was something too that was reinforced when I was in medical school. I was fortunate to be trained with um, one of our one of the doctors at at the University of Rochester who taught us our patient interviewing skills. His name is Dr. Ronald Epstein, and he's now a leader in mindfulness in medicine. He's written a beautiful book called Attending, mm-hmm. and um, you know, at that time he never called it mindfulness. I mm-hmm. think it was when when um, when that came about and I always uh, I talked to him now at that time when I was going through this exploration of you know all these different alternative medicines he was like Rashmi don't you think at the heart of it is really this being mindful and being present with your patients this mindfulness and at that time I was like yes it is you know but I I wanted to at that time was just I wanted to know everything about everything (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right, there's more, <laughs> but now you know. And two, in remembrance of those teachings about yukti, I think that that is so powerful, so powerful. But yes, yeah, so I as I went through my training, um, I did a um, was doing my internal year. Uh, sorry, my intern year in internal medicine, and you know I, I was going along the paces and doing really well. Um, so outwardly, it seemed like everything was great, but. Inside, I just didn't feel like I was connecting with patients in the way that I wanted to. I wasn't quite sure what it was. I just knew there was something that didn't feel right. like, mm-hmm. um, And it was hard to put a pinpoint on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could have just gone through the paces, but um, I knew there was more to explore. I just didn't know at the time. What my path was, um, but I let myself kind of stay with that a little bit. Fortunately, my um, husband at the time at that time had his first opportunity to go abroad with his job, his first expat opportunity, mm. which kind of gave a little bit of a um, time to take a pause. Um, so we actually went to Bangalore after my intern year, but we were only meant to go for a year. So I was only supposed to take a year off in mm-hmm. my training we ended up being in Bangalore for a while and then we moved to Paris and had kids so I, I, I took a, a, an extended break from medicine
0: <laughs> so you were in the middle of your residency
1: yeah it was in the middle of residency yeah after my intern year when we left yeah
0: oh that's so interesting because um you know you brought up this point about being good at school and doing well um do you feel like sometimes that makes us sort of stay in and makes it harder to question?
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, 100%. I mean, I still have that in me right now. Like, I right. I am right now, but there's still that part of me, um, there's still that part of me that seeks the validation of what we consider to be appropriate uh, paths of learning and education or whatever. Right. That. Right. <laughs> um, and, and it's something that I still, you know, it's, it's, it's still a learning space for me, that mm-hmm. space of vulnerability for me when I'm thinking about my career and what I'm doing. Cause I did, I did leave that path of medicine and I came back to it and I'm still interwoven into it, but mm-hmm. not th- and uh, not the conventional, uh, straightforward path, I guess that that many people often take. Right. Um, but it was it was a struggle for me, and that 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 um, that decision to sort of also listen to that inner knowing that that wasn't right for me at the time. Um, it was scary, and at the time I'm I was like, "What the f am I doing?" <laughs> a little bit sorry for the language. But, right. Yeah. There's no. like. But, but there was a little bit of needing to just trust into myself that right you know that, that something was going to unfold. I just didn't know what it was at that time, and I didn't really know until years later when when uh, in residency when I started to teach mindfulness based stress reduction um, I didn't know that there was a home for me in in mm-hmm. conventional mm-hmm. So, yeah
0: well, this is really interesting because um it's certainly a risk uh you you know did step away from this conventional path um obviously your husband's job and move provided um the opportunity the you know it it was what took you off the path in a way but also (laughs) there was that security um so it's interesting sometimes when people take these big risks they do have a partner um who can provide some degree of security and support, right? Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, And he's, you know, my biggest cheerleader when it comes
0: to that stuff. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, right. Because it's not just about, you know, having an income and the financial piece, but really to sort of be all in. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really important, I think, in a lot of people's journeys who take risks of any kind.
1: Yeah, I um, feel privileged that I was able to be held in that way with
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: by him and and you know where we are in life.
0: So, yeah. yeah. So I want to talk for a minute and take a break just to talk about this um, idea of you and your husband going to Bangalore, uh, but your husband is not of Indian origin or background, and I think it's really reflected in the book and your story. So. If you wouldn't mind, I'd love to talk about him and, you know, how you met his story and how or whether that was an issue with your family uh, that you married someone outside the sort of community, so to speak.
1: Yeah, so my husband and I met um, actually in college, and we were partners for the first icebreaker together. So we've been
0: together for... (laughs) Since you're 18.
1: (laughs) Thing now. So so we met when we were babies, yeah, since we were 18. Uh, And yeah, so uh, my husband is uh, from Zimbabwe and his family immigrated to the US when he was 12 or 13 um, to the south side of Chicago. Uh, He is, um, he's black and he is of mixed race. And um, so it was an interesting experience for him because I don't know how familiar you are with uh, culture and society in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Um, There was an interesting dynamic that played there during colonization where, you know, I I think in that effort to sort of divide the communities, there was Mm. a stratification that Mm -hmm. developed. And so it was, you know, when you were kind, when you were in that mixed race category, it's like, you're not quite
0: black. You're not mm-hmm. quite, you know, oftentimes right.
1: their yeah, community- it was all sort of
0: encoded in yeah. the law.
1: Correct. And so their community would often actually intermingle with the Indian community too. So, mm-hmm. um, so there was already for his, him and his family, this familiarity with, with our culture. Mm. Um, but it was really interesting for him as he moved to America. Um, he moved; there, His family moved to the south side of Chicago when his mother remarried. Um, she married a black American gentleman. And um, so he went going to college in, or sorry, going to high school uh, in Chicago was really this eye-opening time for him where he was really able to reclaim his blackness in many ways and his mm. relationship to that. Mm. Um, which was a so really was his
0: mother sorry was his mother black
1: so his his parents are both of mixed ah, heritage okay
0: okay
1: uh, so yeah so his grandmother is black um and other many other members of his family sure. and, and his stepfather and step siblings and all of that so it was this um yeah really beautiful time for him and so we met in in college mm-hmm. and of course to my family um you know, this knowledge that their daughter was dating a black boy was black man was just kind of like they couldn't deal with it mm-hmm, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, so it was definitely a struggle. Um, and you Natasha, you had mentioned our our mutual friend, and I was teasing; she knows all of our drama because there was lots of drama. There was lots of Bollywoodish drama. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh-huh. And not only from family, but even in school with peers, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. I had prank phone calls from people in our Indian community making monkey noises into my phone and you know Ooh. Yeah, and you know different things like that where um, We faced a, a lot even in college from peers, which was painful Um not from everybody but you know here and yeah, there
0: yeah
1: enough that you knew um, um
0: so sorry that's
1: i mean it was it was also many years ago you know i, I don't know i hope things have changed by now in right. College. Right. um but yeah it was a struggle for my family um interestingly not so much for my father my my father had you know gone done some graduate school here he, he had been in in america before he had mm-hmm. met my I think he understood the dynamics of male-female relationships, you know, Mm. are American. So he was always a bit more open and, um, you know, had met my husband, well, at that time, boyfriend many times. And, but for, for my mother, it was another kind of a struggle. And I think more than anything was the fear of the unknown and not knowing and Mm -hmm. around how it would be perceived because, when our when my parents moved here their generation and i'm sure even still now there's so much pressure particularly on the the woman of the family as kind of the keeper of the culture right so anything that the children do they yeah. feel often a reflection on right parenting how she mothered us mm-hmm. the the so um there was a lot of of just fear i would say um mm. And, and, you know, we went through our time together and, um, I had to at some point just let her have her own process mm. and, um, also letting her know that I'm not, I haven't changed. The person who I am hasn't changed. Mm-hmm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm only growing more because of this mm-hmm. relationship. And so over time, about a year after we were officially engaged, so this was 10 years after us, you know, having met, yeah. um, um, you know, she kind of finally came around and um, really began to embrace him much, much more um, mm-hmm. lovingly. And, you know, now he's like, uh, you know, the son, you know, the her, the son she never had, I guess. Exactly. The favorite. Him and my other brother-in-law there <laughs> Oh my god. I don't even want to go there. <laughs> but, your family of two girls, right? <laughs> but 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 it was a big journey. Um, it was a big journey for yeah. for all of the family and and as a community and mm-hmm. um and I think it it has made her much more sensitive to being open to exploring dynamics of race um, mm. and much more open to speaking out when she sees or hears wow. something amongst her peers, which has been really lovely to see too. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause then there's this level of sort of silent kind of acceptance and moving on, uh, which is still a lot of denial in many ways, but that's, that's really amazing to hear. Um, and also wonderful to hear how, sort of sympathetically you view her journey uh that's gotta be hard but
1: it was um at the time such a struggle and I went to lots of therapy Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but you know also in addition to that um at the time I was reading a lot of books about um uh, for example the karma of brown folk by Vijay Prashad Mm -hmm. and other things that kind of helped me to understand the race dynamics because to me it was like uh, I couldn't understand Mm the tension and and, um, the blocks that were coming up for her. And so I was reading a lot and reading books about South Asian immigrant experiences. And so one of the books that I read was a poetry book and Mm -hmm. one of the cues in there was around intergenerational, healing intergenerational conflicts and sharing stories. And part of part of our healing process involved me just getting curious about her journey and inquiring where some of her beliefs were coming from, but also letting her share um, her experiences when she came here and what her fears were. And a lot of that, I think um, it allowed me to have a more clear understanding of of the fears she was carrying. I I didn't realize the weight, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. burden that she had been carrying, you know, so, so that open, keeping that open line of communication was really a big part of the journey.
0: That's amazing, I mean, uh, and the fact that you really could work through that and put in so much effort. Um, I mean, sometimes for families, it's really not possible and they have a break and, I know. Uh, you know, it's anyway, I think that's just uh, incredible part of your story and I think just shows the strength and commitment your whole family have had over the years. So
1: Yeah. Uh, and you know, then with you had tied it back to the book about you know, yeah. when when I'd written the book, I really wanted our family to be represented. Um yes. because the, the South Asian diaspora is so diverse. I mean, there are so many mixed families, you know. Um, And after becoming a mother and my children going to school and experiencing um, different uh, things themselves, you know, part of the journey for me was not only this journey of uh, working around Acceptance with my family, but as I became a mother this understanding that um, I'm the mother of, of of Black girls and that they will mm-hmm. be viewed that way um, mm-hmm. And that was a big learning for me um, mm-hmm. Of course growing up in America. I've I faced prejudice, you know here and there but it uh, the hurt that that goes into when that happens for a person from the black community is a completely different pain. And I didn't mm. fully understand that until I saw it unfold with my kids, um, and started to, um, ask questions to of my family, uh, my, my in-laws and sister-in-laws and other people, um, around that. And, um, you know, really brought out that tiger mom in me a little bit around, Uh like, protective. (laughs) Uh, um, And so, you know, I also, how important it is for our kids to be seen and for, you know, and I, you know, the importance of seeing a Black Indian girl exploring these traditions from South Asia, I think, that the um, that the the value of that is not is intentional, you know. Yes. As we know so much in our own South Asian culture around mm. uh, privilege and those kinds of dynamics, mm-hmm. uh, that it was really important to me that a family like ours be seen um, and to see the, to to see how beautiful an intergenerational relationship can be mm-hmm. uh, as well in a multicultural family like ours.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that is one of the uh, really special things uh, about the book. So I, I really, it's lovely to hear your, um, you know, your viewpoint on why it's important to you and how central that was to the book. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're jumping ahead a little bit, uh, but I, I you know, would love to talk to, I mean, just this idea still boggles my mind that someone who grew up in a somewhat traditional um, household and actually was very deeply connected with traditional aspects of your own culture um, did a couple of things that are really, um, you know, Really, uh, that stepped away from that very typical path. And so, you know, both your questioning of your medical track and, um, you know, your life partner choice are both very sort of brave and different decisions. So, um, anyway, I I just want to say that. And I think um, it's really interesting that you've sort of carried on and really explored. Um, aspects of both those choices, um, as you went on. Um, so... Well, it's
1: really it's interesting, Natasha, because um, actually, you know, at the heart of our traditions is this beautiful practice of inquiry, and mm-hmm. you know, the heart of the yoga tradition is becoming more and more familiar with ourselves and mm-hmm. trusting trusting to, into our own awareness and our capacity for knowing and caring and decision-making and finding the freedom in that, right? That's really the heart of a lot of our mm, teaching. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I think, although it seems to be perhaps going against the grain of what society yes, <laughs> is yes. telling, perhaps very much in line with sure, the heart the heart of our teachings, right? right that
0: right.
1: you know that we can be really aligned with ourselves and mm-hmm. the truths that we know, and that inner capacity for for caring and and trusting and and um, and trusting into our capacity to make decisions that that can serve us and our families and communities too. You know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, your journey really shows um, the path of someone who is living these um, ideas in so many ways. Um, so I think, you know, you're absolutely right to bring that up because it's not that there's anything inherently contradictory <laughs> with the teachings of the tradition, but it is still an unconventional choice. Maybe it's more the convention and society's sort of expectations um, that I sort of sloppily referred to as <laughs> tradition. <laughs> um, but you know you left us uh, where you were traveling um, had sort of taken a bit of a break from your residency and um, had moved to a few different countries. When you when did you sort of pick up the residency again and did you move back to the US Because I know then you had a UK stint and are now back finally no. in the US again.
1: So we Maybe not after, finally
0: but <laughs> currently I had,
1: I had had our two children when we were living in France mm-hmm. and it was um kind of also that like period of time of having two kids, uh, you know, baby and two year old <laughs> and going crazy. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I hear you. <laughs> I
1: need to, like reconnect with my career, you know. Yeah. So we at that point intentionally moved back to the U.S. so that I could finish my residency. Okay. Um, and by that point, when we were coming back, many of my peers had already finished their residency or were just about finishing. And I had a few friends who were like, oh, you know, you should really consider preventive medicine and public health because it seems to be really in line with um, mm-hmm. with your. In- so. So that's what I pursued. So we moved back to Buffalo, New York at that point, And um, I finished residency in preventive medicine there and got my master's in public health along the way with that. Um, and during that time, one of um, my mentors was a teacher of, of mindfulness-based stress reduction. And so I took the course with her and then started co-teaching with her for healthcare providers and for um, mm-hmm. medical with residents. And she was also a yoga teacher. And so she, you know, in our first meeting, she was like, you know, I think you're going to love this. She's like, because it's this like DL way to be teaching down low way to be teaching yoga philosophy in uh, (laughs) in, in medicine, you
0: know? Oh, that's great.
1: So, which it really was, it's, um, and I don't know how familiar you are with MBSR, though you're in Boston, so maybe you do know a lot about it, but a mindfulness-based stress reduction, yes.
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: it's an eight-week course, um, it's a clinical adaptation of uh, mindfulness philosophy, Advaita Vedanta philosophy, mm-hmm. and incorporate meditation and Hatha Yoga, um, along with um, a lot of um, personal reflection and group work to explore ways of of mindfully relating to oneself and um, Mm -hmm. one's health issues. It was initially uh, created for uh, people with chronic pain, but then Mm -hmm. as... Um, it developed and more research was, was coming out. They expanded the, the indications for that. And now it has been adapted into numerous, uh, different interventions like mindfulness, um, based cognitive behavioral therapy. And Mm -hmm. there are, um, other programs that more explicitly bring in compassion. So mindful self-compassion and loads of other programs as well. So, um, you know, finding finding this really was like a homecoming for me because I felt like I could really be with patients in a way that felt authentic and felt mm-hmm. like I really helping them with um, with easing easing the suffering, right? With mm-hmm. you know, in a way that we don't get to do in a 15-minute office visit. We don't mm-hmm. get to go in depth in this way. And then also because it is a class that's taught in a group setting it utilizes that wonderful supportive community that's also
0: mm-hmm.
1: too. So, um, so, yeah. So this so, is
0: part of what you do currently in your clinical practice as well, right?
1: So I've basically been teaching my own kind of adaptations and versions of, of this in different ways. So I've taught, we lived in Vietnam for a while, so I taught in a, in a, family practice there Mm -hmm. as well as at the kids' school with teachers there. Mm -hmm. Um, When we were back here in the U.S., I I created an adaptation for caregivers of cancer patients. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of a mindfulness-based self-care sort of course. And that's what I've been teaching when we were in the U.K. as well. Um, And um, I've also been um, teaching for... Uh, healthcare providers, done um, courses um, for caregivers, formal caregivers. So not only physicians, but also, you know, nurses and um, other therapists that might be working with patients as well. So
0: So, uh, tell us how the picture book uh, came about in the midst of all your other work.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as I was exploring mindfulness and intending all of these trainings, um, which were, you know, all these, um, people who were, many of them were new to mindfulness. And, um, I noticed that there was a lot of misunderstandings about yoga within this world as well. And Mm. yoga or, you know, um, they're not understanding, how a lot of these South Asian philosophies are so interlinked, you know, the the teachings of Buddha and mindfulness are so interlinked with Jain philosophy, with yoga philosophy. And Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of um, misunderstanding that I was finding, a lot of um, fears even sometimes or exotification around yoga or only identifying it with the physical asana form and not understanding Mm -hmm. About it, And so those were some of the things that I was starting to think about. But then also, as I was going through my mindfulness training, my kids were small, and I was really incorporating a lot of it with them and Mm -hmm. started to just gain a a different kind of appreciation for a lot of the um, teachings in our traditions and, you know, basic mantras and things that you learn as a child, um, as I was playfully exploring a lot of them with them and uncovering what the meanings were for them, you know, it was like um, exploring with the different eyes through these young kids' eyes. And they are so wise and were teaching me so much that mm-hmm. I think we can sort of, as adults, philosophize and get really, you know, intellectual mm-hmm. about that. But really, at the heart, um, there's, it can be so simple and so they taught me so much around that and so I was um, you know, when I'm teaching clinically I won't bring don't bring a lot of our um, our culture and traditions mm-hmm. into what I it's not always you know an appropriate space but I wanted to be able to express that because there was a lot that was coming up for me um, a lot that I just felt like I wanted to be able to share and kids books seemed like a wonderful way to to do that since i was learning so much from my kids as well mm. and there at the time too even now you know when i was growing up there weren't very many kids books kids books featuring indian families and then of course now even now there's not very many featuring diverse families either mm-hmm. i'm sure you've seen some of the data where it's like you know, I think most of the kids' books are either have white main characters or animals as their main yeah. character, but it's only like only 10% of books feature a black character, only, I don't know, it's less than that of Asian or Latino or indigenous. Mm-hmm. Kids. So, so, you know, there's this need that was there and um, all, even the same goes for a lot of the mindfulness kids' books. You know, you'll see there as well, very few of them kind of uh, tie in the, the cultures from where these traditions come from. And so I really wanted to sort of share something that might be a, kind of a living expression of, of what yoga can look like in the diaspora.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's wonderful. I mean, I I and I think that's exactly what it feels like, um, this sort of living expression of both this traditional practice, um, but in a very obviously updated modern context. um, And anyway, I I would love to talk a bit about the picture book process because, you know, I've heard you say that the draft took a week, but I imagine this is like, at least months, uh, if not years, in the making. Yeah, um, sure. And then, you know, just give us a little bit of the nuts and bolts of how you went from that idea to the book.
1: Yeah, so actually I had written a book on guide through mantra first and that had like this whole um, introduction for parents about mindfulness and mantra and meditation. And when I was had started to work with the editor at um mango and marigold press she had said oh like this introduction has the framework of of a book like why don't you make this the first book that comes before Mm. Guides? then you could and so at the time i was like oh i don't know how to do that (laughs) um but the more i sat with it you know kind of like you said unfolded within a week we were um back at home visiting my mom and it kind of just naturally unfolded but like you said the entire process was much longer so you know I had had the nuts and bolts there of, of, of the book but then of course you're refining it along the way and with picture books you have to be very um, uh, concise with your words you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so, analyzing every word choice and all of those kinds of yeah. things. yeah
0: I think picture and, books are so challenging I mean I now, can't imagine uh, putting one together that's effective because i mean you have the pictures are at least half of the story and the work and it's just it just to me seems like a really overwhelming challenge <laughs> to put a good picture of it together good
1: challenge, yeah so yeah and even even describe the describing all of the pictures cuz you as you know from reading finding Home, a lot of there's a lot of learning that happens as you watch Ananya's journey through the pictures, too, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, so yeah. So, you know that that whole process of the editing, all of that, and then finding finding the right fit for the illustrator as well. And then right. once we had that all set, it was also another many months of of working with her through the the illustrations. Um, yeah, it's definitely a long process. I would say between when i actually wrote the finding ohm book and now is two two years pretty much so wow
0: yeah. wow yeah. well congratulations uh, i think <laughs> everyone should grab a copy or several um it's it's really wonderful i mean again i think this is great for a grown up to read meditation is a very difficult topic even for great masters to teach anybody <laughs> so I, I just think it's just really beautifully done it somehow gets to the essence of it um, which even for adults is helpful um, mm-hmm. and yet it's a you know lovely engaging picture book story um, so you know l- maybe talk to us a little bit about meditation um, the you know in
1: the context
0: of the book if you like Um, yeah um, yeah one
1: of the with the book was you know it is meditation and om can be um really complex topics you know Mm -hmm. one of the things with the book is i wanted to create something if for us in our storytelling culture you might hear the same stories growing up many, many times over and over, right? So, and as you're hearing, I don't know, Mahabharata or whatever for the nth time, <laughs> as you grow, you you find these little things mm-hmm. in it that you didn't know mm-hmm. before, you know? So that's how I imagine this book being that, you know, maybe as a three or four-year-old, a child may be attracted to the the beautiful art, you know? And, and there's something you can even learn from the art, the embodiment of, mm-hmm. of emotions that are there, the pavas. Um, but, um, you know, that, that as they grow older, that they can perhaps keep uncovering more and more meanings through mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Even, even the adults can as well, because the, the richness of the practice, of course, is in the, in the practice itself, but can also be in the inquiry around it afterwards, um, which I think can be really rich as families because this is this can be a family practice something that you do together which it, it was for me growing up i don't know i don't know how how mm. it might have been integrated for you but um creates that opportunity again to just create more uh, connection and learning and growth together around oh you know when you sat what what did you notice in your body you know mm. what 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 did that uncover for you how did you feel at that time you know so like all of those little things can can help also cue children into their experience um so in terms of you'd asked what me- about meditation itself um and and really i think at the the it, meditation is a practice that's helping us um, train our ways of, of paying attention and caring for ourselves um, and there's so many Practices across the world of contemplative practice. You know mm-hmm. the beauty of our um, of our schools of thought. I think <laughs> in India has kind of made a whole science around how we connect and remember ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So, so really, there are many ways of connecting to our attention, whether we're being focused with our attention or receptive with our attention, which you kind of see Anu going through those different attentional modalities mm-hmm. but then also it's inviting the kindness and care like apupa says pay attention with kindness and care uh to everything that happens next right so it's the the qualities of um shraddha you know like the faith and the trusting mm-hmm. self and the confidence and that 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 interest and care in what's unfolding um and all of that serves to allow us to get to know ourselves to feel into our potential to be able to rest into ourselves to be able to connect those places of of inquiry from where we can uh, you know allow that relationship with inner insight to kind of bloom too Um, Mm.
0: that's amazing i mean um in many hindu households um Again, I didn't have this sort of practice um, in my house as a family, the way I think you did and that you depict in the book. Um, But it's often really a sort of almost a prayer um, (laughs) practice. And certainly there's a contemplative aspect to it. But um, did your family actually ever do more than the mantra or... Mm, Did they break it down in this way or talk about it in this way to you?
1: So we, you know, strong bhakti practice here at home too. Uh, I, growing up in Kerala, um, you know, both of my parents, there's a strong, the Kerala tantra tradition is very Devi-oriented and mm. uh, for uh yeah, so we had a, a lot of that as well as, as prayer. Um, but I guess the way my father would describe it, because I was curious and inquisitive, as I had mentioned before, mm-hmm. so I always know why we're doing things mm-hmm. or why. And um, so it's always, you know, this this prayer is almost like, an invocation of invoking those qualities that are already inside of us so Mm. a a prayer to Ganesha is allowing us to connect with that uh, inner capacity we already have inside to move and break through obstacles and lead and um, that that you know his remembering him is a, is a brings light and enlightens, remi- reminds us of that quality that's inside mm. of us. So that was the way it was always presented to me, mm. um, which really then I, I guess influenced the way that I was relating with it.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: and and then as I got older and you know my my father also had a very strong spiritual practice mm. and so. As I was learning more, you know, I, I, we would have a lot of talks about this. And he was on his own path as well of learning too. So.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it was just a lovely way for us to connect around mm-hmm. these things, which were so important to him as well. It's that marriage of jnana and, and bhakti, right? That, that uh-huh. intellect and heartfulness really go hand in hand in what we're doing. So. Yeah
0: that's really interesting so do you use a mantra practice and do you actually chant om as a sort of a device for lack of a better word yeah. to return to uh, you know your meditation when your mind strays uh, so i
1: i have learned many different mantras along that that was my introduction to as from youth and in in college when I was I'm in mean, India was mantra practice and so um, and then as I was exploring more philosophies than the, the teachings of Buddha and inquiry there as well and so my practice personal practice right now is a combination of um, utilizing mantra and um, inquiry practices around how that mantra might be, uh, what's arising in me, or what is it connecting me to? Or so- sometimes I may not use a mantra. Sometimes I may connect with that quality of whatever's here um,
0: mm.
1: in the body or the mind. So it's it's a mix of things, I guess. Mm-hmm. That I, but that understanding that there's no one right way or wrong way. We all have our own way. It just mm-hmm. happens for me mantra is something I connect with because it's the first thing I learned right but mm-hmm. there's so many beautiful uh beautiful poem poetry and sutras mm-hmm. that you can the you know the the, the or bhajans and kirtan, the the music and the rhythm itself can be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. value but then also the meaning can be valuable yeah um doesn't have to be these things in Sanskrit or any other. It can it can be in any language. A word can be powerful. <laughs> so sure. It's going to that you know it can be yeah. anything.
0: And with your kids though, do they do the OM um, and practice like this? Um,
1: so they've also my father has and I've taught them a few different things that mantras and so you know they each have their own we mm-hmm. explore in, with inquiry around them as to how it's making them I, i've always kind of inco, inco, had them think about how it's making them feel and what it what it's connecting them to so they each have their own mantras that they feel very connected to for un, for anu it happens to be guide mantra for
0: mm.
1: free it happens to be the mantra from um upanishads Uh, so she you know she has her own connection with that so i'm not very dogmatic at all as you can tell (laughs) in the way Mm -hmm. that Mm we explore these things it's really about helping teaching them showing them and letting them lead the inquiry and what 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 they're uncovering and so Mm -hmm. even with that with 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 pre around that mantra so then you know why is she what 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 is it about it that's that's soothing for her and what does she uncover about herself when she uses it so you know using those kinds of questions to also help them be paying more attention and <laughs> to understand um, rather than blindly yeah. just doing something right
0: know? yeah I mean I'm just curious how this really looks sort of in your household um, you know um, I think I'd like to just keep two things that just come to mind. One is the idea of your daughter sometimes journaling after. Yeah. Uh, which I really love because when I do a very brief meditation practice, I mean, um, one of the things that comes out of it is just that after that, of course I have all these thoughts and I need to just like scribble stuff down. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's really interesting that, you know, she does that. Yeah. Um, or both well, of
1: them, or, yeah. can be such a powerful tool for self-reflection, you know. And it's not only to jot down the, the annoying things, but the things the that, that list, are... The to-do list, the mom list. <laughs> but the, the nourishing things that are happening, too, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things in the... I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the curriculum guide for the book Finding Home. Yes, Olm. yes so so there's a lot of places of inquiry around there right so like you know what were some thoughts you noticed what were some emotions you noticed and then there's the inquiry around the body scan and drawing what you experience and um those can be really also powerful tools for for Mm -hmm. noticing well how um how does it feel when i'm feeling really connected like how does that show up in my body um how does it feel when i'm like you're feeling irritable. Like, what does that look like in my body? Um, and so those can be fun sources of inquiry because sometimes we can't put words to that and drawing can be helpful, you know, mm-hmm. but it also helps them. For example, with the discomfort feeling, you know, Anu had periods of time and now even now with anxiety and so yeah. helping her connect with, well, what are the sensations that come? Cause sometimes when we feel the anxiety, yes there's that emotion that's coming up but then it's also the fear around the gripping that we might feel in the chest or you know uh-huh. that my heart is fluttering. oh there's got to be something wrong with me because now I'm you know so yeah. that train of ensue in, in allows her to kind of just become more familiar with oh like mm. oh I'm holding my breath uh it's okay I can breathe like I must be feeling anxious about something right now and uh-huh. what ask my mom for help, or I can go, you know, whatever
0: that is. Yeah,
1: yeah. But just kind of cues them in. We could well, keep talking really, talk I know, I happens. know
0: we're running out of time, but, you know, this isn't a really important thing for me because I feel like um, both in schools now, this sort of, there's this shift where mindfulness training to some extent, whether it's very superficial or really a daily kind of check-in or something is going on in public schools and private all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I also find uh, my daughter, who is nine, is mm-hmm. um, finds it difficult to settle in and actually resist it. And that's mm-hmm. why I think it's interesting you brought this up with the anxiety because I feel like sometimes the practice itself is anxiety provoking (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. that's lovely that you bring that up and that and that can be true for many of us because as soon as we start to pay a little bit more attention to ourselves we become more aware right and Mm. so how do you how do you then utilize the information that you're receiving that's that's also part of the the journey itself not just the note at the processing of what's unfolding too, um, and and that's right. That's why there's so many tools for approaching right. So, what what is the util, what what is the utility of a mantra or just an affirmation? You know, mm-hmm. or I'm love. It doesn't have to be an old Sanskrit word. You know, what is the value of that? It's to help us connect with the positive resourcing that's there as well. So those kind of things can can really go hand in hand with helping us resource stability and then to. Enough stability mm-hmm. to feel safe to do the inquiry because it's mm-hmm. it's both hand in hand. I think.
0: So I'd like to bring up one more meditation question before we wrap up, um, and yeah. that is this idea um, which I came across um, of challenges um, during meditation practice that are significant enough mm-hmm. to actually really cause sort of negative um, mm-hmm. outcomes. Um, and there's this work which you've referred to previously too from Brown, from Willoughby Britton's group, Mm -hmm. and I know Mm -hmm. this is just sort of initial investigation. I don't want to dwell on it too much because it's not clear really how frequently these things come up for people. What they Mm -hmm. did was, as I understand, interview a group of, I think, 100-ish people in depth who had some negative association, and the reason I want to talk about this is because I think... Culturally, now, it's really seen as a sort of universally positive uh, practice, experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it's important, and I think the study showed this, that um, people who don't have that kind of 100% positive experience shouldn't Mm -hmm. feel like they're the only ones. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, Yeah
1: and we kind of explored this a little too right like when we start to become more aware
0: yeah. we do
1: start to, and and when i'm teaching an 8 week course for example it's usually around like week 4 or 5 when when mm. people really begin to you know no, notice a lot more mm. it's it's it can be pain when we've been disconnected from ourselves for so long that process of reconnecting can sometimes be painful, right? Like even when you think about in your body and you allow yourself to be with it, suddenly it's like, everything's aching and hurting, right? Right. But it can be that to touch our hearts too. Right. So, um, and I think, you know, there are, uh, so many tools within the, are the traditions of yoga and mindfulness for, resourcing safety for resourcing connections to, to positive resources that are mm. there um, that that are starting to already get more attention which is wonderful because I think you know um, the the practices of inquiry and mindfulness have been so attractive to the West because to some extent it is very intellectual and there's kind of that detachment from mm-hmm. some spiritual and heartful qualities which make it more easy to translate into a study or into the healthcare Mm -hmm. setting (laughs) but those practices were never in isolation like even Mm -hmm. like they were always in partnership with the heart and spirit Mm -hmm. so all these other traditions as well whether it was you know metta loving kindness practices Mm -hmm in the buddhist tradition or any number of other practices in our hindu tradition as well and so um there's a whole you know before the focus and research was on focused attention meditation and open monitoring which was their way of saying concentration or being receptive Mm -hmm. like dharana and dhyana in Mm -hmm. in yoga philosophy but um then there was this third category, which they called generative practices, which in under which like loving kindness and compassion fall. Mm. Well, but I think there's more, thankfully, more and more interest in those because that connecting to positive resourcing is also really important uh, in the practice. So um, I think they'll just learn more and more about it. But some of those things are things that can help with finding stability when you're feeling discomfort in a practice Mm. Uh, and being and sometimes meditation isn't appropriate like sometimes it's not necessary and then you know maybe finding a different way to connect with yourself is more useful particularly Mm. uh if if you are right in the midst of a big upheaval or change or um you know or in the midst of major depression or a severe episode of anxiety Mm -hmm. there are tools that can be utilized you know Mm -hmm. um that can be more helpful and can be of more service so
0: Mm. okay i mean again we could talk about this for ages but i i would love to hear (laughs) about books um we've talked a little bit about some books that you found interesting and influential but i'd love to hear if there's anything that you're just loving right now or if they're books that really influenced you
1: so right, I'll just share what what we are all reading right now. So uh-huh. I'm reading. I'm in the. I'm just about halfway through with a book called "See No Stranger" by Valerie Kaur.
0: Okay, I don't, I don't know, know it.
1: Um, she is um, a social justice activist and lawyer, mm. um, and also uh, of ties in a, a lot of her. Um, tradition and what she grew up with and philosophy around ways of meeting the current moment mm. that's really a beautiful book um I'm also well the girls are reading um Ananya just finished a great book called uh American as paneer pie Is that what oh called? yes yeah I like just bought that
0: powder. yeah, yeah. Uh, how blood. old are your
1: daughters again um they are almost 12 and 10 now (laughs) okay yeah Yeah. so so yeah so that one was just finished um and she really loves has loved i don't know if you saw there's a series of books the first one was called children of blood
0: and bone oh yes i think i bought it or it's on my list for sure did they like it
1: (laughs) well she she devoured that last year and i just ordered the next book which is children of virtue and vengeance so that's the next the next one on her uh... oh exciting (laughs) um and trying to think what else um oh there's a beautiful children's book that's coming out this week called all because you matter by tammy charles and that also looking forward to getting soon which is a beautiful um book that she wrote for her son and the art is just incredible in that book as well
0: oh it looks it looks beautiful i'm just looking at it great wow lots of good recommendations uh (laughs) i always love hearing what people are reading so thank you so much rashmi we have completely gone over time but i feel like we we've squeezed in like four or five different things into one
1: i know (laughs) we'll have to we'll have to chat again soon yes
0: we can have a part two and i look forward to watching your work um where can people find you and the book um if you could tell us where to follow up that would be great
1: yeah. so the book is available at mango and it's also available at local indie bookstores as well um also on Mangomarigoldpress.com is the freely downloadable curriculum guide for finding them that you can um, download as well. And I'm on Instagram at Rashmi Bismarck. And I've also got my professional website as well. hmm <laughs> There. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'll be posting any upcoming book events and things like that there.
0: Oh, that's great. All the best with uh, the book and its launch. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today, answer all my ridiculous questions. and uh, (laughs) I look forward to grabbing a drink or a coffee at some point in real life. Um, Absolutely. Great. And thank you all so much for tuning in. As always, links mentioned today can be found in show notes at theindianedit.com. If you've enjoyed it, we'd love for you to subscribe. Um, You won't get anything in your inbox. You will just not miss episodes of the podcast as they become available. And if you have any suggestions for people you'd like to hear from, please email me or send me a message on Instagram at theindianeditpodcast. I'd love to hear from you. And thanks again for listening.